0: You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin.
1: Erin Hale is a freelance journalist based in Taiwan. Her work has appeared in The Guardian, The Independent, Al Jazeera, Voice of America, the BBC, The Southeast Asia Globe, and Forbes. I came across her work in a recent article that she wrote about how Taiwan's banking system is stuck in the 80s. The topic was top of mind since it was the week that we released episode 180 with Paolo Leasing. In that episode, Paolo and I talked about how people in Taiwan still update their passbooks by running them through dot matrix printers at the bank. Erin has lived in Asia for seven years. We talked about how she's lived in Hong Kong, China, and Cambodia, and the reporting that she's done in Hong Kong and Cambodia, in addition to Taiwan. Erin, I see that besides a Taiwan connection, that we may have a Canadian connection, because I looked at your website, and I see that you graduated from McGill.
0: Yeah, I went there for my undergrad. Um, I'm not Canadian, but... okay. There are a fair number of Americans who go there. Most of them are from the East Coast, but um, I knew about it because my dad's from Vermont.
1: So. Oh, okay, great. Um, so are you from Vermont or the East Coast?
0: I'm from Chicago. Um, oh. Okay. When I was applying for colleges, um, I know he 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 ended up not going there, but he had applied there, so he suggested
1: I look oh, at okay. it. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, I grew up in Ottawa, and then I went to University of (laughs) (laughs) Illinois-Champaign-Urbana. That's funny, we switched. (laughs) Yeah, exactly, right? (laughs) So you've been in Asia for seven years, and how long have you been in Taiwan now? Um, I've been in Taiwan
0: for, I think, about two and a half years. I got Uh here at the very end of November 2019.
1: Oh, okay, and what brought you there?
0: Um, I came here because I got a Huayu Scholarship, um, I had been living in Hong Kong um, before that and uh, freelancing and also working at University of Hong Kong and I just realized that if I wanted to progress in my career I really needed to learn Chinese and so I applied in early 2019 that was before all of the protests happened in Hong Kong so at that time Taiwan seemed more exciting um, oh. story. yeah
1: okay so you didn't did you witness any of the protests and the, and the unrest in Hong Kong? Um, yeah, I was there from the
0: beginning. Um,
1: mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, technically started in April, was the very first one, or one of the first mm-hmm. ones. And then in June, um, I was there for that. I was away for a little bit of July, but I saw all the way through um, November. And I actually... I initially had planned to go to, to move to Taiwan in August 2019, mm-hmm. but I delayed okay. it for the semester. I see.
1: Yeah. I see. So what was it like seeing that happen and unfold in Hong Kong?
0: Uh, in the beginning it was like really exciting because the first 2 weeks was like pretty peaceful and um, It was just really amazing to see that many people on the streets. Um, I don't know how familiar you are with it, but there were two big protests. I think one was like June 9th, Mm -hmm. and the other one was like seven days later. They're both on Sundays. Mm -hmm. And reportedly it was one million the first week, and the second week was two million. And um, that was very, very impressive. But when it started to get... um, I would say more unhinged, but it, it changed in tone a lot. That was just really crazy. Cause yeah, it was it was just I, I'd seen the beginning of the umbrella movement in twenty fourteen and I always regretted mm-hmm. I actually left I actually left Hong Kong at that time to move to Cambodia. So mm-hmm. I was I appreciate that I was able to witness this, but you know, it was also very surreal to see that happen. Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, did you do reporting on that? I did.
0: Um, I did reporting for, I was working as the Hong Kong, as a stringer for a German news agency. So I went from doing like three stories a month to like working for them probably like six days a week. And then yeah. in, in addition to that, I just, I freelanced for a lot of other people as well. So, yeah. mm-hmm. so it was a big, it was probably my biggest, you know, career moment project so far, because Mm -hmm. the world's attention was so focused on it, and it was so focused for so long.
1: Um, Yeah, I could imagine that must have been a very intense experience, because I happened to be in Taiwan during the duration of the Sunflower Movement, and I remember going to the Legislative Yuan almost every day or every other day, and experiencing that it was probably the most intense social movement that I've witnessed in my lifetime. So I can't imagine what what it must have been like being in Hong Kong and then also seeing how it turned, as you said, when it became more unhinged. Yeah, it was, It was. you know, it was, I guess you had like the adrenaline going because it was mm-hmm. exciting in a way,
0: but then you also had this question in the back of your mind of like, where is this going, you know, and mm-hmm. what, What's going to happen afterwards? So
1: yeah, so there was more an element of danger, or were you, were you concerned about your safety or your civil liberties? Um, I
0: wasn't concerned at the time. Um, I mean, I was concerned about possibly getting hit by like a projectile, but I'm not a photojournalist, so even though I was there, I wasn't in the front row and. I also knew, unfortunately, that I'm a very visible foreigner. Um, So at that time, the Hong Kong police were mostly leaving international media alone. So I wasn't that concerned. Now I would be more concerned in Hong Kong because I think they would specifically target foreigners.
1: Right. And the Chinese government has been very outspoken about how they want to handle things.
0: Yeah, it looks like with John Lee, he's he wants to pass a new, like a local version of the national security law, and mm-hmm. then um, people are also expecting some laws against you know like foreign interference, foreign subversion, stuff that sounds a lot more like something you would see in China. So that could be coming, which is really scary.
1: Yeah, it's it's quite sad. On a lighter note. I got acquainted with your work when I came across a recent tweet about an article that you wrote about Taiwan's banking system. And uh, (laughs) as most people who have uh, lived in Taiwan for any duration, it is uh, strangely stuck in the 80s. And it was quite funny because that was the week that we released an episode with uh, Paolo Leasing, who is the author of Startup Taiwan. And he also has a podcast by the same name, Startup Taiwan. In our interview and often in his podcast, he talks to foreign entrepreneurs and this issue comes up so many times. He often asks his guests, what is something you think could be improved in Taiwan? And invariably, the banking system always comes up. (laughs) So how did you come up with the idea to write a story about this?
0: Well, I actually have to attribute it to Catherine, who... Is the main character in my story? She tweeted about this like two years ago,
1: and mm-hmm. it, it really
0: stuck in my mind for some reason. It's very descriptive where she was complaining about her experience, and also um, there's the fact that I've just lived it, you know. So I have to go into the bank every month to pay my rent in cash, and um, there's that. And then you know when I had to um, open, I had to open a bank account to receive my scholarship at the post office. Mm-hmm. And like they asked me to get a chop, which is like a mm-hmm. Chinese seal. And I mean, I'm, I'm, I didn't even have a Chinese name at that time. And I'm, you know, Irish American. So I was like, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> so, so they directed me down the street and I got one. Unfortunately, my first and last name are only eight letters. So it actually fit on a chop. So I have an English language seal, which I think is pretty special. Um, but yeah, you know, just living in Taiwan, your anecdotes as well. And, uh, one of my friends also works with English teachers, bringing them here. So he has Mm -hmm. a lot of sort of interesting stories about the bureaucracy they go through. (laughs) So yeah, it's in the ether here. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's interesting uh, because your piece does include a photo of your chop and we'll include it in our show notes for people who want to read it? And it was really funny to see the collective reactions from the Twitter sphere. There's, you know, a bunch of people that, like Catherine, who comment on Taiwan and tweet about Taiwan. And I just love the quotes, uh, like Michael Turton, who said that thread was like re-experiencing 30 years of trauma. <laughs> yeah. And Kathy, who said everyone on this island can relate. Um, so funny.
0: Yeah, Twitter was very helpful with this. I actually um, crowdsourced a lot of stories, and I, I kind of wish I'd included a few more in there. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that process and then reading this, I think we're very cathartic for a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> we're struggling silently, yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. So that's interesting. How often do you take to Twitter to get um, sources or uh, references or? Like to do research for your stories.
0: Um, i I would say I do it actually like a fair amount. Um, maybe like fair amount being like once or twice a month. Um, mm-hmm. because I work alone. I'm a freelance journalist, so mm-hmm. you know sometimes finding people can be really hard if you don't have um like a network. And um, it's pretty helpful, I would say. You know, I sp- at least here. I don't know if that's mm-hmm. true everywhere, but it can be good as a good way to find people, do a call out. Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: yeah I, I find it interesting because I've increasingly gone to Twitter to see what people are saying and to find people. And you can get a sense of if someone's a reliable source, depending on who's following them and what they're saying and who's retweeting them and things like that. So hopefully you can get a good sense of that because in this day and age, you know, we have a lot of disinformation, fake news, and all that kind of stuff going on. Yeah,
0: I was dealing with that yesterday, actually, because I was helping um, Al Jazeera cover um, the Philippines election, mm-hmm. and I did a call out on Twitter to the Philippines just being like, right. how is your, um, you know, how is your experience voting? And I got, I mean, Philippines loves Twitter apparently because it blew up and I got a wow. lot of reactions from people alleging you know like voter fraud and I was like I don't know if this if they're you know I, I got a lot so I assume that some of it must be true but I, I was definitely mm-hmm. like checking on people's profiles you know based on their comments to be like does this look like you know it was just made does it look like a real person you know is there if someone looks like they could be verified maybe I can contact them you know stuff like that. So.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, how do you discern that, right? Because we know that there are bots and a lot of different things going on in Twitter.
0: I guess the blue check helps. Yeah. Um, and then you can also, as you said, like, see if they know someone you know. Like, in Taiwan, uh, Taiwan Twitter is fairly small. So I think mm-hmm. it's easier to check here, yeah. sure. But I think somewhere else, like the Philippines, where so many people are online, um, mm-hmm. I think. A lot harder
1: what do you think of these times that we're living in I don't know if it may be if it's correct in assessing this or assuming this or well I think in these times it seems like we have a lot of more conspiracy theories a lot of disinformation a lot of fake news perhaps it could be social media perhaps it could be because we have a lot of more information circulating around the world with technology and the internet do you think how does that affect your job as a journalist
0: it can be hard
1: you know um, because
0: you talk to I think it kind of comes up more when you're doing like box pops you're trying to talk to like ordinary people Mm -hmm. because um you can be like you can tell, I don't know, you, can, you would talk to them and you'd be like, okay, I know that what this person is saying probably isn't true, but I can also see that they very much believe it. And then you're like, well, what is my role? Is it to correct you? <laughs> or is it to push back? Or is it just mm-hmm. to, like, report that, like, this is how you feel? And I think, like, two examples, I'll give, like, kind of extreme <laughs> examples, are mm-hmm. um, during the Hong Kong protests, people were, protesters were rounded up and, you know, sent into these, like, jails and... I think the conditions were pretty bad. No mm-hmm. no one likes going to like a jail or a prison. It's very cold. There's not enough food. But you had these like stories of you know, like a protester died or they were like sexually assaulted and like none of that I think okay, the sexual assault definition maybe is very broad here. You know, maybe mm-hmm. like the police touched them inappropriately. Mm-hmm. You can see that, but um, mm-hmm. these weren't like things you could verify. But, and they were, I don't think any of these were ever really verified, but you know, people really believe them. And so it's almost like they were true anyway. And then you talk to people, you're like, well, should I be sharing that they think this? Or am I spreading this further? You know, that was very challenging. Here in Taiwan, um, you don't see this in English so much, but Mm -hmm. I know from my limited encounters with Chinese media and stuff, a lot of people believe, a lot of conspiracy theories around COVID you know, and like, or they really doubt the government and they'll just like share misinformation. And it can be surprising, you know, but I think a lot of this information in Taiwan's case it's being shared over line, but you know, people really do believe that, that Taiwan had a vaccine shortage last year because the government wanted to make money off of like MediGen or other oh. conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. So like a lot of stuff like that, you know, mm-hmm. it's maybe a small number of people, but they do believe things like that mm-hmm. and it's all shared on social media. So, when in you interview them, it comes out, and you're like, Should I be, you know, you're like, What is my role? I'm not sure <laughs> if I should be yeah. telling you that's disinformation or if I should just be, mm-hmm. you know, writing down what you say. So,
1: mm-hmm. it's tricky. Aside from going through the quirks of banking in Taiwan, that you've discovered some other quirks in, about Taiwan or living in Taiwan, are there any stories that you could assure?
0: Yes, I definitely encountered um, issues with Taiwan's immigration procedures that definitely came to a head for me. I mean, I was pretty loud about it um, during this time. (laughs) There are other foreigners as well who had this problem where Taiwan has these very strict rules that if you're switching between different kinds of visas, you have to leave and come back. Uh But first that was hard because there was COVID. But then last day, they shut down all of their consulates worldwide in response to the outbreak We had a big outbreak back then. And then they stopped issuing documents. And, like, so all these people who were, you know, trying to come here are probably vaccinated, like, could not come in. And, like, no one really seemed to be able to deal with this fact. And Mm -hmm. what ended up happening was um, people would come in, but they had to come in on, like, these emergency visas. Mm -hmm. So you really needed to, like, know someone in government or have someone contact in government and I ended up having to leave Taiwan and go to Singapore and come back. Um, Wow. It's really weird. But yeah, it was, it was strange. I think it speaks to, I think there's a big sort of a cultural issue here you might've encountered where I think that like lower level employees are sort of like siloed off in terms of their like decision making ability Mm -hmm. and also like just training. So like they couldn't deal with it but then for some reason there's no way to tell people at the top. They're like disconnected from them. So I would hear stories about like someone, you know, some people very high up in the Taiwanese government being angry when they found out about this, but there's no way for them to interact with people at the lower level who are seeing this problem. I think part of it is maybe middle management where you have this, you know, culture where people don't want to tell their boss that something is wrong Or criticize them or their policy so that's something that i think kind of extends throughout when you see a lot of bureaucratic problems in taiwan they're often it's this just in a different context kind of repeated over and over again does that make sense
1: oh yeah for sure i think you gave a very good assessment description of it because i've certainly had my share of visa immigration issues which of course i won't get into On this episode (laughs) but um yeah there's definitely um bureaucracy and unfortunately when it comes to things like this sometimes you need to know somebody higher up to help you out when you get into these situations
0: yeah i was lucky a ministry of foreign affairs helped me because i am a registered foreign journalist Uh and i heard that i think one of the economic ministries was very helpful with getting tech people in but Mm. if your job falls under a category of another ministry apparently some of them were like less helpful Mm. because basically the individual ministry had to get you a apply for your emergency pass Mm. not a good system (laughs) (laughs) right
1: and now for a short break hello listeners we're going to be experimenting with some shorter form content under 20 minutes long and we'd like to hear from you would you like to listen to shorter episodes? What would you like to hear more of or less of? email us at podcast at TalkingTaiwan.com. We also have a special announcement for all of our donors, past, present, and future. We're giving all of our donors exclusive first listening access to upcoming interviews with Karen Lin, Democratic candidate for Justice of the Civil Court in Queens, New York, Chin-Chi a multidisciplinary artist who was recently inducted into the New York Foundation for the Arts Hall of Fame, Michelle Kuo, an attorney, activist, and author of Reading with Patrick, which is a runner-up for the Dayton Literary Peace Prize and the Goddard Riverside Stefan Russo Book Prize for Social Justice, Ed Lynn, author of Death Doesn't Forget, and Joe Henley, author of Migrante, If you want exclusive access to these episodes and more, support Talking Taiwan by making a contribution to our GoFundMe campaign. We are so grateful for our growing listenership and all the support that we've been receiving. Now, back to the episode. What are ways you get your sources for stories aside from Twitter? Are there any interesting stories you can tell about how you've gotten sources for certain stories?
0: I guess some of it is, you know, just like reading the news. I mean, a fair amount of what I do is just, you know, like reading the news and then writing about sort of doing like a summary, bigger picture summary for Mm -hmm. like international media. So it might not be like same day coverage, but it'll be like a week wrap. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, sometimes I think it's just like, you know, you know people and then in the interview they will just mention something, you'll be like, oh, I should I should follow up on that, you know?
1: Mm.
0: I think that's, like, a big way of getting a story. And then also, you know, over time, um, just, like, noticing trends that may or may not have been written about. But um, sometimes as a foreigner, I think it's good because you might notice, especially when you're new to Taiwan, you might notice things that people don't notice, you I know, mean, that are very obvious. I'm trying to think of an example.
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm <laughs> right now. I know. People often think it's um so interesting being a journalist and you have these sources you know or these informants or things like that so I, I was just curious.
0: People do but I think they generally work for Reuters and Bloomberg. Yeah. I think that sure. they're I think they have um those outlets have like Taiwanese reporters who have been here for at the same job for like 10 years you know mm-hmm. Most of the people who really have the ins. Mm-hmm. As, a, as a foreigner I think I'm sort of on the outside you know sometimes making it
1: in. but yeah um, and yeah. also you're a freelance journalist what would you how would you explain to people what it's like being a freelance journalist because as you said it's not like you work for Reuters but you write for several different sources right you have to pitch stories to different um, outlets
0: yeah so I've kind of like built up my freelancing career um, but so for a long time, I was in Cambodia and Hong Kong. I was working for the German press agency. Mm-hmm. So I was on a contract to them. So, oh, great. Yeah, so it wasn't full time. But, you know, I would if that, there was news, I, I was kind of like expected to cover it and, you know, like check in every day.
1: Mm-hmm. Just be
0: like, this is what's going on. And sometimes they would take something short. And so I would use kind of that as my base. Um, in Hong Kong, I had a second job as well. I had for visa reasons but um, I'd use that as my base and then you know there was a story that was just they wanted pretty simple stories so there's a story that was too big or complicated I would pitch elsewhere and then you develop relationships and um, yeah you know kind of just like build. it's it's slow but it can build Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of in the beginning there's a lot of cold emailing but you Mm -hmm. know usually once you find editor if it goes well like they'll want to work with you again during Hong Kong, the Hong Kong protests, that was a very unique situation where I actually had editors contacting me for the first time. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, because especially in the beginning, you know, Hong Kong's really expensive. Um, so I think mm-hmm. people were not sure if they should send someone there, you know, or, oh, um, I see. or they, maybe the person needed to leave. They weren't there for that long. So they would have, mm-hmm. like, freelancers like me fill in. Oh,
1: I see. So a
0: lot of that was true for TV.
1: Yeah. So, did you do some TV when you were in Hong Kong?
0: I did. I wasn't very good at it, but I did. Do some, <laughs> yeah, I did do some like you know stand up like piece to cameras like uh-huh. you know one minute like here's what's happening you know the uh-huh. anchor will ask you one or two questions and then
1: uh-huh.
0: yeah it sort of cuts to something else. So I did a lot of those.
1: Yeah, so. it's very different, right? Being on camera, it's a different kind of approach and way of reporting.
0: Yeah, it sometimes it went well, and sometimes I just, you know, I was kind of learning by doing. So
1: mm-hmm.
0: it, sometimes it did not turn out as well as I would have <laughs> liked.
1: Yeah. Right. What do you think it takes to succeed as a freelance journalist?
0: Mm, I think that, okay, so my cynical answer would be <laughs> you probably need to be either have a second job or be someone who, you know, you can ask your parents for help. <laughs> <laughs> if something really um, I think I think there's something to be said for the way that, like, as journalism has become more professionalized, like, I think it has become much more of, like, a middle slash upper middle class profession because you kind of need that in the beginning to have that, you know, safety net. Like, okay, mm-hmm. if people hit me late, which happens a lot, or they'll wait till the very end, like, 60 days mm-hmm. to pay you, like...
1: Mm-hmm
0: it's really stressful
1: yeah
0: you know even in your like late 20s you you might have trouble paying your rent and it's Mm. it's kind of scary and you know if you don't have someone you can call to borrow money from or give you money like that's bad wow but i also think it's just a personality thing you like Glenn for punishment (laughs) 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 maybe it's more like also entrepreneurial a little bit entrepreneurial you know like you're your own brand so yeah Yeah,
1: it's tricky. So what do you enjoy about it?
0: I definitely enjoy making my own schedule and Mm -hmm. being able to pursue what I want. I really hate offices. (laughs) (laughs) I worked in a few, and they just, like, make me, like, very depressed. And I think
1: Uh
0: I'm okay working on my own as well. And I like learning new stuff, you know. Even if sometimes it's a story that I didn't pick, like an editor pitched to me, Mm -hmm. it's usually, like, I'll find something interesting about it, you know.
1: Yeah, yeah. It exposes you to a lot of different things, and I'm sure you've learned things that you didn't know before.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you're never bored. I mean, there are lulls, don't get me wrong, but yeah, yeah, you're you're never really bored.
1: What are your favorite types of stories, or anything particularly memorable that you've worked on?
0: I guess, like all journalists, you know, usually a story that you're able to work on for a while is fun, and then... You know, explain a, a slice of life. Like, I actually really had a lot of fun writing the banking story. I don't know why. Um, Is there you know,
1: something that you learned from writing it that you didn't know before?
0: I think it answered a lot of my own questions about why mm. things work this way. Like, I think <laughs> I think I just have fun. Like, figuring what out.
1: questions? What questions did it answer?
0: Like, why are why do Americans get rejected when they go to the bank? I mean, it's kind mm-hmm. of obvious, but people don't want to deal with the IRS you know, and then, like, why don't they want foreigners at their bank? Well, the answer is, like, a lot of these people are not depositing very large amounts of money. Mm -hmm. So, like, the, you know, MAFAN (laughs) difficulty of dealing with it is not worth it for the banks. So it Mm kind of made me understand them a little bit more, (laughs) even Mm -hmm. if I don't fully agree with everything they're doing. Like, at least I understood it. I like uh, culture and religion stories as well. Like, that's just fun because I like learning about you know, traditional religion and just it's a personal interest of mine so it's it's cool to get paid to do something you know, that you like or just learn something
1: there's a lot of interesting things to cover in Taiwan you know, all the temples and all the different religion religious beliefs and practices and things have you covered that in Taiwan
0: I have not done enough yet Um, I think the closest I've gotten to that is I've, um, I've done a few stories on like indigenous issues here. Mm. Um, and that a lot of sort of religious stuff came up for that, especially I did a story on hunting Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, hunting is like an integral part of Taiwanese, like a lot of indigenous religion and like how they practice it. You know, so that was, that was cool to learn about. But no, I need to find some more time to do to do more work <laughs> on yeah. like um, you know like fortune telling and um you know spirit mediums. I guess those stories are kind of people have done them before, but I just want to learn for myself. So
1: yeah. Sure. Yeah, I did look briefly at your website and I saw that piece about the hunting and in indigenous peoples and we'll also put a link to your website. Where do you see your career going? Because I feel like freelance journalism is not, I don't know if you want to make a long-term career of it or if there's something that you see further along in your career.
0: That's a good question. I think that, so I don't just freelance, I should say that, Um, Mm -hmm. since I've been in Taiwan on the side, I, I also do like a certain amount of corporate work. Oh, great. And, yeah, which is, like, advertorials and then Mm -hmm. sometimes advertising campaigns
1: Mm
0: -hmm. um, for, for like, newspapers. They usually have, Mm -hmm. like, the Times or Wall Street Journal have, like, an advertising Mm -hmm. side. So that's that's okay. I don't know if I want to do that full time, but that is one way to make money. Um, But eventually I would like to get a job where I guess I could maybe be on contract with someone or, I mean, I would love if, foreign correspondent job but those don't really exist anymore and Mm -hmm. you tend to not be a local hire Um, Mm -hmm. so you know it'd be cool if I could have a relationship with an outlet where I at least knew you know I was making X amount of dollars and you know maybe at some point would be considered for you know higher position that would be good
1: you're learning Chinese how's your Chinese going
0: it's hard
1: yeah (laughs)
0: Yeah, um, so I had to be, for COVID reasons, it's a long story, but I had to be, like, a full-time student for a year and a half, Uh so that was, like, two to three hours of class every day, plus homework, so that was very stressful. Mm -hmm. Um, It was good, because I think it got me over, like, the hump, but Mm -hmm. it was also frustrating because it really emphasized, a lot of the programs here really emphasized writing Hansa by hand, Mm -hmm. which... Not really relevant to my life, um, so you kind of miss out doing other kinds of practice because you're spending so much time just trying to learn how to write characters. Mm.
1: Um, yeah,
0: it's very character heavy. Yeah.
1: So, what's your goal in learning Chinese? Is it to be proficient speaking or reading, or what is your goal? I
0: think I would like to be able to. I mean, being able to read is a very high goal in Chinese. Um, yeah, I, I would like to be able to probably understand like the newspaper or social media posts I mean they do a lot of um, I've been reading a little, little bit with my teacher and they do use a lot of um, like abbreviations and Yeah, like literary words, which can be hard to understand mm-hmm. But if I could like look at it and like get like 70% that would be cool And then I would also really like to improve my spoken so I could do my own interviews That would be that would be ideal Honestly, I don't know, maybe I would have dropped out if, like, I hadn't been forced to keep, basically, I had to keep studying to stay in Taiwan, because I couldn't change my visa. So it was kind of like the Taiwanese government was making me keep forcing me going, (laughs) (laughs) if I wanted to stay here. So that was kind of, um, you know, extreme, but I think in some ways, maybe that was good. And now I'm still doing it at the same school. I'm just doing one-on-one classes, which are very expensive, oh,
1: okay. but yeah. a lot
0: more fulfilling, yeah.
1: Yeah. What is it that brought you to Asia in the first place? Because you've already been in Asia for seven years.
0: So my parents did business in China. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> I laugh at them now, but um, like my stepmom was a very early believer in like the peaceful rise of China. <laughs> Uh-huh. Which you know, 20 years ago, people thought that this was, you know,
1: yeah. I mean, it would yeah. happen. You know,
0: China mm-hmm. was joining the WTO. Mm-hmm. Things were on the upswing, and then I went to, uh, I did a gap here. I went to a gap here, so I went to Shanghai for a year after high school, where I did learn some Chinese, but mostly I was just like hanging out and going partying and stuff. Mm-hmm. But I feel very lucky that I got to see China then, because that was before the Olympics. And, um, you did have this sense that things were getting better. Mm-hmm. I don't to explain, like looking back on it, you're like, things are bad now, just problems, but you know, it's going to get better. But, I mean, I was also pretty young, but this is the impression I got from like older people I would talk to. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was like, cool, that's over. I guess I'll go back and like live my normal life. So I went home. And then at the end of college, I realized that, oh, I think I do want to go back to Asia. And I feel dumb because I didn't study East Asian studies. Um, Mm. I should have done that. But um, yeah, I I spent like a year at home and then I decided to go to Hong Kong. So so at the time, I wanted to go to Beijing, but Beijing had the smog apocalypse. Uh This was like 2012, 2013. Uh um, So I was like, I don't want to get lung problems for an internship. So I went to Hong Kong instead.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And have you been to China recently?
0: I did. I went to China twice in like 2018, 2019. So that's not that Mm -hmm. recent. Um, One was a trip to Shanghai, um, which was kind of like unrecognizable. And then another was a trip to Guangzhou, Mm -hmm. um, which felt more like Shanghai when I was there in the Mm mid-2000s. Cause they have a lot of, um, there's a lot of like European buildings there. And, um, of them remember kind of run down in the way that they were in Shanghai before right. this like, influx of gentrification. So it kind of it actually really reminded me of like the old Shanghai. Yeah. But those are just two short trips. So
1: yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if you have any thoughts on what's happening there now. It's just really sad, you know, yeah. because, um,
0: you know, you meet
1: foreigners who,
0: Journalists and other people who, you know, they really love living in China and mm-hmm. uh, Or they did and I think things have kind of been going bad it Seems like the milk has been souring for a while, you know, there's been this like rise in anti-foreign feeling and mm-hmm. I think now with COVID they just really feel like it's really over so
1: people are leaving So you have some contacts that are in China now? Um,
0: Yeah, just like friends, you know, mm-hmm mostly foreigners, but also, you know, like, a lot of um, the journalists in Beijing had to come Mm -hmm. to Taiwan last year um, because they couldn't get their visas renewed. So, you know, just talking to a lot of them, and, you know, they say, you know, anyone who came to China, you know, like, over five years ago, like, really like it, and they have these, like, fond memories of, you know, traveling. It's kind of chaotic, but in, like, an interesting way that made it worthwhile. And then anyone who came, like, within the last four or five years has much more negative views of China because they didn't get to see this like good side. They just got to see, you know, tighter and tighter roles, more and more mm. anti-feeling, more and more anti-foreign feeling, you know,
1: mm.
0: so I thought that was an interesting observation.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, are you gonna be doing uh, any more coverage in uh, other parts? Like I know that you, as you mentioned, you covered uh, Cambodia, Laos or other parts of Asia. I would really like to,
0: um,
1: I would definitely,
0: you know, once we're we're still kind of restricted by travel here, um, but I would like to be able to travel more. Um, I would definitely like to go back to Cambodia because, Mm um, things have, I don't know if I want to live there again, but at least for a story, because, um, things have really changed there. Um, it's very China centric now. It wasn't, Oh when I was there, yeah. Mm-hmm. Basically, what happened was, I think T- Donald Trump got elected,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and then I think Cambodia figured out that, her own son figured out that he didn't give a fuck about Asia, you know, like, sorry. They figured out no, that he didn't no. care, care about Asia. Like mm-hmm. Obama had that pivot to Asia, and then in that vacuum, just like China mm-hmm. entered, and things really changed overnight, you know. Mm-hmm. So now it's kind of like a Chinese colony, almost.
1: Oh, wow. So you lived in Cambodia, you said?
0: Yeah, I lived there for three years,
1: yeah. Oh, okay. Great, well, thank you so much. Um, it's been really interesting talking to you about your work and what you're doing, and how can people learn more about you and your um,
0: work? My, I think my website, I need to update, but I think my, I have a very active Twitter account, so that might Yes, be I
1: spot. see that. You have quite a following. <laughs> <laughs> A
0: lot of that was from the protests, the Hong Kong protests, because I think people mm-hmm. would embed my photos into Reddit. So I got oh. a lot of, pho- I think I got a lot of followers that way. I've been told I complain a lot on Twitter, so I apologize. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Do you still have a, a lot of contacts in Hong Kong?
0: Um, yeah, I still have a lot of friends there, but yeah. a lot of the people I used to interview, unfortunately, are either now in prison.
1: Oh, that must be really disconcerting. Oh boy.
0: It's it's pretty sad. Yeah. yeah. I, I would like to actually send one of the mail, but apparently mm. I can't right now because of COVID protocols. But Oh wow. Yeah. 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 No, it's it's like try not to think about that for too long because yeah. it's kind of upsetting. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. Well thank you so much. Um, so I will share your website and your Twitter handle on our website for this episode for people who want to know more about you and thank you for taking time of your schedule to be on Talking Taiwan.
0: No problem. Thank you.
1: I've been speaking with Erin Hale about her work as a freelance journalist. Now it's time for you to show us some love. We just found out that you can rate us on Spotify or if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Audible leave us a review there. It helps others to discover Talking Taiwan. To learn more about any of the items mentioned in this episode, visit our website, TalkingTaiwan.com. There will list any related links. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Taiwan. I'm your host, Felicia Lin.
0: Talking Taiwan is brought to you by forumosa.com.